I'm Dr. Irene Pastis. I'm a clinical assistant professor with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine. And here today we have Dr. Daniel Majorwich. He is a third year internal medicine psychiatry resident at East Carolina University. And on today's podcast, we will be covering lithium. Hey, everyone. Good to be here. Dr. Majorwich, can you tell us some more about the history of lithium? Absolutely. So lithium was actually introduced in the mid-1800s, and it was initially used for the treatment of gout. It wasn't until later in the 1800s that they realized there might be some properties to helping with mania. And actually, it was an Australian physician named John Cade in 1949 that really started this work with treating manic patients. In the late mid to late 1900s, there were more randomized control trials, and then FDA was approved for acute mania in 1970 and maintenance treatment for bipolar disorder in 1974. In the 1990s and early 2000s, they realized the neurotrophic and neuroprotective effects of lithium and really seemed to have some long-term benefits. Yes, and I think we are now appreciating how effective lithium is and all the neuroscience involved in its mechanism of action. What are some common brand names for lithium? Absolutely. So the common brand names you might hear are Escalith or Lithobid. Those are really the main ones that we use. And they're different formulations as well. You have immediate release forms, the slow release, controlled release, and syrups. So there's a variety of ways to deliver lithium. Right. And as a psychiatrist, it's always helpful to have the liquid option when it comes to medications. Tell us a bit about the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of lithium. Yeah, so lithium is actually an alkali metal, and it's a cation. So it's minimally bound to protein, and there's really no biotransformation. It is renally eliminated, and you reach a steady state in about four to five days, and it does peak with its level in about one to two hours. In terms of its mechanism of action, it seems to affect the glutamate pathway to, to some degree, and they think that helps reduce the excitatory neurotransmitters, although other mechanisms are being studied. Exactly, and that's why it's uh, FDA-approved for acute treatment of mania. So when patients are acutely manic, it does not take that long for lithium to kick in and have an effect, right? Absolutely. And how do we dose lithium? What are some common doses? Yeah, typically we start dosing lithium about 300 milligrams twice to three times a day. But it's really important to use plasma levels. And oftentimes, we'll start a patient on lithium and then check their levels in about five days or so once we're in a a steady state. In terms of the the serum levels and using it clinically, for acute mania, usually we look for serum levels about 0.8 to 1.2. And in the maintenance range, around 0.8, although sometimes you can go lower depending on the clinical utility. Exactly, and I think it's important to stress that as clinicians, we don't necessarily try to focus on a dose, but on a level, and make sure, making sure it's clinically effective for the patient. Do you mind reviewing some of the indications and clinical uses of lithium with us? Absolutely, and I think you brought up a, a great one already. So one of the major FDA-approved indications is in bipolar 1, especially for manic episodes or mixed episodes. Um, There's also use for maintenance treatment in bipolar disorder as well. 
Some other common indications that aren't FDA-approved but you may see used um, as adjuncts in bipolar depression or even to major depression. There's this thought that lithium is quote-unquote protective from suicide, and previous literature has shown this, although there have been some newer double-blind randomized control trials, especially in the veteran population, that maybe there isn't as much of a suicide protective effect as we think. Again, this might be specific for certain populations, though. Right, and that information was surprising because, you know, we had always been taught about how it decreases suicide risk, and that is something to consider when using lithium. Yes. And when it comes to clinical monitoring of lithium, what would you recommend? Absolutely. So when we talk about getting those lithium levels, it's always important to get a trough. And what we mean by that is, Checking level usually 12 hours after the last dose, or if you're dosing it twice a day, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes before that, that dose. And prior to initiation, it's important to get a baseline uh, basic metabolic panel, especially looking at kidney function. Also important to get thyroid function tests and consider an EKG as well, especially for patients above 40. And then during the first six months, it's important to assess renal function, usually every couple of months, and checking thyroid functions, you know, one to two times during that period. After the six months, when you're on this maintenance treatment, you know, just monitoring renal function and thyroid function tests are important. And whenever you have any changes in medication, say you're starting a blood pressure medication or starting someone with NSAIDs and you think it's going to affect the lithium level, it's important to, to recheck lithium levels to make sure we're not developing toxicity. Right, and that is very important too in terms of checking levels, following up levels, uh, and being mindful because lithium can have some serious side effects as we will review a little later. Uh, but even for primary care providers, it's important to remember that lithium can actually uh, have some detrimental effects on patients' thyroids. So making sure that is something that's regularly monitored. Well, let's review some contraindications to lithium. Absolutely. So, of course, any hypersensitivity reactions that a patient's had in the past will preclude them from having lithium. But some major ones include any severe kidney disease or cardiovascular disease, including Brugada syndrome. Um, that's really one to, to pay attention to. Of course, something that clinicians might be asked are in the pregnant population and whether this is a safe medication for folks that are pregnant. And lithium does cross the placenta, and it's important to have a risk versus benefit conversation. There are higher rates of miscarriage and preterm delivery, and lithium is found in breast milk. Of course, one of the test questions we're often asked is about Epstein's anomaly and this cardiac anomaly we get. Although the risk is about 10 to 20 times higher versus the general population, really the prevalence with first trimester lithium use is still quite low, about 0.05 to 0.1%. And this is important because this is a lower risk than what we'll discuss with other mood stabilizers, especially the ones that affect the neural tube. And so this may have to be an option for pregnant folks uh, as a safe alternative to those medications, including carbamazepine or valproic acid. Right, exactly. So although dangerous, still a lot safer than other mood stabilizers like valproic, which we'll discuss in the next podcast, since it can cause neurotube defects. And Epstein's anomaly, like you said, is something we really worry about in the first trimester. So... 
a little safer to try patients on lithium in the second and third trimester. Mm -hmm. And then one more uh, point to emphasize is the uh, contraindication in patients with severe cardiovascular disease because of the sinus bradycardia, sick sinus syndrome, and some of those contraindications. Well, good. Well, let's review some of the serious side effects and things to look out for. Absolutely. So some common ones you might see include a tremor, some polyuria, thirst, some GI distress like nausea. More disturbing side effects you might see over time include some weight gain, um, acne, and of course abnormal thyroid function tests, which is why we check thyroid tests before starting and during the course of lithium, as well as renal dysfunction. So again, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus is a side effect you might develop over time with lithium. So it's important to monitor for CKD and folks with worsening kidney function. And as Dr. Passes, you had mentioned earlier, sinus bradycardia is a, you know, a side effect we want to monitor for, as well as delirium and encephalopathy. Uh, and now this is an interesting one because in psychiatry, we often use ECT for treatment refractory cases, especially for depression or mania. And folks who are on lithium can develop delirium, especially in the setting of ECT. During pregnancy, uh, especially during delivery, uh, the, the fetus, the baby, may develop hypotonia during this time. And so it's important to hold lithium about a day or two prior to delivery in order to monitor for this so-called floppy baby syndrome. Additionally, remember that lithium is a salt. And so the fluctuations with hemorrhage during uh, childbirth can also increase the levels, so you also want to monitor for toxicity for the mom as well. And that's why it's important to have close communication with OBGYN. And of course, you know, the test questions and things you might see as well clinically are, are the toxicities. And that's why it's important to monitor lithium levels. So for mild to moderate toxicities, usually around 1.5 to 2, you mostly see some GI symptoms, again, like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain. And you can maybe see the beginning of neurologic symptoms. But really, once you start getting to the moderate and severe levels, around 2.1 to 2.5, you'll see more severe neurologic symptoms like fasciculations, clonic movements, hyperactive, deep um, tendon reflexes. Eventually, you can get things like seizure and confusion. And of course, when you have severe toxicity, you know, levels above 2.5, you can get things like coma, seizures, and renal failure. But a big thing to remember is that lithium can be dialyzed. And so if you start to notice these symptoms, it's important to consult the nephrologist as soon as possible. Lithium is a very effective medication, but at the same time, it can have some serious side effects, as you've mentioned. Um, for the primary care providers or um, OBGYNs that are listening to these podcasts, remembering that it can cause floppy baby syndrome, flaccidity in the infant, um, even though the levels could be at a normal level in the mom, they could be at a toxic level in the baby. Mm -hmm. And so always remembering to hold it 48 hours before. That's, that's a good point. Well, let's review some drug-drug interactions. Absolutely. So especially with primary care providers, you may see patients with various blood pressure medications or various pain syndromes. And so remember that certain medications can increase the, the levels of lithium. And you can see these with the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the NSAIDs, 
as well as with various diuretics, including thiazides. So whenever you're starting someone on a blood pressure medication or any NSAIDs, consider rechecking a level and monitoring for any signs of lithium toxicity. With clozapine, one of our second-generation antipsychotics, you may see things like DKA and MS. And with certain antidepressants, there's some questionable um, concerns for serotonin syndrome as well that have been reported. Of course, anytime you have someone with fluid restrictions or sodium restrictions, these can affect lithium levels, so monitor patients very closely during this time. Exactly. And we actually see quite frequently patients developing toxicity if they're taking NSAIDs or if they are in fluid restriction. So that's one more topic to be mindful of since it is seen frequently. Well, Dr. Majorwich, would you mind if we reviewed a few points about lithium and how we use it and what side effects to expect? Absolutely. So again, lithium is one of our mainstay medications in psychiatry and has really shown efficacy over the years, especially with bipolar patients and acute mania. As we discussed, you can start dosing it about 300 twice a day to three times a day, but it's really the levels that are important, and that level is usually 0.8 to 1.2. Again, as primary care providers, it's important to monitor the thyroid function tests as well as the kidney function tests. If you notice any signs of toxicity, uh, to be aware of reducing the dose. And if you get too elevated, to reaching out to nephrology to help. Again, it's important to change the doses towards the end of pregnancy before delivery in order to minimize floppy baby syndrome as well as toxicity to the mom. And it's also important to consider holding it before ECT to minimize delirium in the post-ECT setting. Exactly, and those are all important points to remember. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Majorwich. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Passis. And I look forward to our next podcast.